Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show where we contemplate what the future could look like if we embrace bold, free, and compassionate policies. Our last episode was about how immigrants built Silicon Valley, something that was possible because of significant border deregulation in the 1960s. And if you enjoyed that episode, you know, go give us a good rating on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. For part two of our investigation, we're going back to college. You know, that place where you played beer pong, tailgate at football games. I mean, uh, the hit the books in the library every night and studied hard to make your parents proud of your excellent grades, right? Our university system, it really is a marvel, a destination for students from all over the globe. But the university we're familiar with today looks radically different from American universities of the past. That's a product of changes in the mid-20th century that not only created what are known as research universities, but also generated a tremendous amount of innovation. Silicon Valley would not have existed in its current form without them. The most famous of these newfangled universities was Stanford University, which grew from an educational backwater into the beating heart of Silicon Valley. Now, this would have astonished Americans in the early 20th century, who would have assumed that like Boston-area schools like MIT and Harvard would continue to dominate scientific research. To figure out why Stanford specifically, and Central California more generally, played such a surprising role in America's innovation economy, I needed to find an expert. So I decided to talk with Margaret O'Mara, a professor of history at the University of Washington and the author of a recently released Penguin Press book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Welcome to the show, Margaret. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're talking about Silicon Valley in a particular location in California. Of course, that's not the only tech hub in the U.S. In fact, long before Silicon Valley was synonymous in people's minds with technology innovation, there was the Route 128 corridor outside Boston that had that distinction because of all the research at you know, MIT, Harvard, and major corporate research labs. So why was it that the baton was, in a sense, passed why didn't Silicon Valley just grow in Massachusetts or expand in Massachusetts rather than why did it move to California? That's a great question. Yeah, if you go back a hundred years, when you know there was there was a lot going on in Boston, Harvard, MIT, early early companies like Raytheon that were spinning out of those those uh, institutions, and meanwhile, out in the valley, the the it was best known for growing fruit. It was the <laughs> yeah. nation's capital of prune production. Um, <laughs> that was that was really what what made its name. But but what. Where, where things started to turn significantly was during with World War II um, and the Pacific Theater, which, uh, of course, there's a great deal of military activity up and down the Pacific Coast before the war, but particularly escalates during the war. And then after the war, of course, the, the World War II is succeeded by the Cold War and an unprecedented turn by the U.S. government into not only um, kind of ongoing enlargement of military spending and the, the growth of what Dwight Eisenhower famously dubbed the military-industrial complex, but also um, the U.S. for the first time getting in the business of supporting and investing in basic scientific research and development and education. And a lot of that money flowed to higher education institutions. California had another advantage over Massachusetts, which is that the state had prohibited what are known as non-compete clauses in employment contracts. Those contracts allow companies to lock their employees into their jobs by prohibiting them from going to work for competitors. So if you were, say, I don't know, an engineer at eBay, you couldn't go work in a similar job at Shopify or at a startup. 
That's bad for innovation. But the place without non-compete agreements then had a real advantage in attracting top-tier talent who liked the flexibility and security of being able to move between employers at will. So I asked Margaret about the implications of California's non-compete ban. Yeah. So you, when you ban non-compete agreements and, and, and look for, you know, for most of the states in the United States uh, don't ban them. Um, but a non, you know, essentially you allow people to hop from one company to a direct competitor without being penalized. Um, you're able to do that. Um, you're able to job hop and you're able to job hop within an industry and within closely related industries. Um, so what it does is it allows a lot of cross-pollination from company to company. And the, and the cool thing, the crazy thing about this whole thing is that the, the California's non-enforcement of non-compete clauses in employment contracts is not a product of the tech revolution. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't anything that had to do with it at all. In fact, it's this crazy accident of history. It dates from the late 19th century when California is crafting its you know, first constitution, trying to reconcile these different systems of, you know, Mexican, Spanish, English, American legal systems. And it's just, a, it's just happenstance. <laughs> and it happened to be that way. But it turned out that was um, one of a number of particular kind of conditions in California, sort of California specific things that really enabled this very particular business culture of sort of small, small to medium sized enterprises in the beginning. Um, and now, lar- you know, including larger enterprises as, as things move on, it enables the free movement of people. Um, and the, the free movement of people and capital is absolutely, you know, in, in many dimensions, absolutely critical to the American tech story, and particularly in California, it's done it, um, enabled that um, uh, in, in this sort of funny, you know, who knew? I, I think you know, back in the 1870s, the, the people who were writing California's constitution never would have imagined <laughs> that they were enabling this sort of thing. It, it seems like there's two stages in in the history of Silicon Valley. And, and today, folks are most familiar with this later stage, which is everything built on top of the internet, a lot of um, you know, software applications and, and kind of digital digital tech. But the Silicon part of Silicon Valley is a reference to the first stage where it is stuff being produced for the military, hardware, integrated circuits, semiconductors, microchips. That So it, it seems like the conversation about how we got the Silicon Valley, it might be a different story because we're talking in a sense about two different eras in Silicon Valley. Do you have any thoughts about mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely, I think of Silicon Valley 1.0 and 2.0 um, that, that really, in, in a way, it's just not a, not just a matter of switching from being a hardware-focused place that was also happened to be a manufacturing center um, to a place that was all about software, was and is all about software. But it's also one of scale. Um, if you look in, you know, really up through the 1990s, I mean, the, the Valley was, look, it, was, it wasn't unimportant. It was, you know, mm-hmm. making important things that, that a lot of people used. It had these companies. Companies that were on the covers of magazines. It was a big deal. But when you and I really only fully kind of realized the 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 difference when I was putting the book together, which starts in the 40s and mm-hmm. ends with pretty much yesterday. Um, how the scale just it just scales up so massively mm. in the 21st century that these companies become bigger and richer and and their products are you know look it's impossible pretty much impossible to get through your day in 
the modern United States, even if you decided I'm going to delete Facebook, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a Luddite. I'm not going to have anything to do with these things. You know what? Even if you've decided you're going to live radically offline, you went and bought something at a store whose transaction software was, you know, powered by Microsoft or Amazon. It's almost impossible to avoid the products of the big five, you know, three of which are based in Silicon Valley, two of which are based here in my town of Seattle. And and that's different, um, but I, but they're really connected, and I think they're connected in a in a number of ways. One is sort of technological. Um, look, the you know that what the hardware is um, you know enables the software and vice versa. And of course, the hardware business doesn't go away. You know, you still have Cisco making sure. making routers. You still have you still have all these big giant companies that don't get as much attention. Look, Intel continues to be one of the most important tech companies in the world and it's making hardware um, and and it's been around since the late 60s. Um, but the, but another really important connective tissue, and I think this is, I, I find this very important in understanding why these companies and their leadership, the choices they're making, the, the business strategy they're adopting is very much shaped by the business culture that was established really with a semiconductor industry in the 60s and 70s. These ideas, you know, idea of growth, um, mm-hmm, growing mm-hmm. fast, um, getting zero to one, getting, you know, creating a market and taking it over, um, the which has been incredibly successful. And it, you know, quite frankly, is one of the reasons that some of today's tech giants are getting in trouble um, because yep. they have, you know, kind of had this head of growth, um, this growth mindset and this focus on um, this is what we're doing. We're, we're building products. We're building the best possible product, we're bringing it to the best, biggest market possible. And um, not realizing that, you know, if you build an incredibly powerful search algorithm, or you um, build an incredibly viral social network, that actually that can have negative externalities that you don't expect when it gets that big and that pervasive. But the story of the rise of Silicon Valley, it's not just a California story, it's also specifically a Stanford University story. Step back to uh, California and the history of why Silicon Valley. So we're, we're in the prune fields, prune orchards, I don't know, I don't know how <laughs> prunes grow, prune orchards of California. Um, you have Stanford University there, but you actually have a great line in your book. Like today we hear the word Stanford and we think, oh, you know, like Ivy League, you know, high, uh, uh, top tier yeah. university. But you have a line in the book where you describe Stanford as, quote, outsiders were a touch more surprised by Stanford, once written off as the sentimental folly of a 19th century robber baron and his wife, a school best known for its pretty scenery, rugged football team, and Herbert Hoover, which is a great line. Um <laughs> How does – so Stanford's there. Um, it Clearly, Stanford plays an important role in the story. How does Stanford become that kind of central player? Yeah, Stanford plays an absolutely critical role in this story. It's the it's the hub, and it's not just the institution. It's it's the the structure of the institution, which was set up by that sentimental robber baron Leland Stanford <laughs> and his wife Jane, um, and also by the leadership, the mid twentieth century leadership, the choices that individual leaders made at Stanford to really remake it into what became the ultimate Cold War university. If you dial back. Back to Stanford's founding, and it opened in 1890. Um, it was found. You look at its founding grant, which actually you can go and Google. You can find it online. It's really interesting to look at the do- the document itself. Mm. And it's and it's very very different from say the founding mission or the guiding mission of Ivy League 
schools like Harvard. The, the, you know, Harvard and Yale were founded in the 17th century to educate future clergymen and lawyers. They were liberal arts institutions for the elite, yeah. um, and they've you know they've had a certain you know their their mission has been shaped by that subsequently. Stanford, on the other hand, was a product of the 19th century industrial age. Um, it says explicitly in the founding grant, you know, I'm going to paraphrase this, but effectively, you know, the, the purpose of, of this university is for its, its, its students and, and graduates to bring, bring something useful into the world. Hmm. And there was a great deal of latitude, um, you know, when you get sort of fast forward half a century, this is an institution that on the outside kind of looks like a lot of other and is trying to be like a lot of other elite private institutions, but hasn't quite gotten there yet. Um, but it, there is a lot of latitude that its, it, its leaders have in kind of how it structures itself. There are no rules on kind of, you know, making sure you have, you know, a, a full roster of humanities departments, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a really instrumental person in the story is a guy named Fred Terman, who was actually a, a born and bred facult, son of a faculty member hmm. um, at Stanford, who uh, becomes a faculty member there, an engineer, electrical engineer, and becomes dean of engineering, and then later becomes provost. And during World War II, he is back in uh, – back in in Boston, actually, in Cambridge, um, working like many other engineers on the war effort related to the Manhattan Project and other things, and uh, an effort that was led by Terman's graduate advisor, a guy from MIT named Vannevar Bush, with a very funny, funny <laughs> first name. Um, and Terman realized that um, Bush was had has was working with Presidents Roosevelt and Truman to, to build a science, sort of permanent science complex, where the government was going to start on a permanent basis, putting a lot of money into uh, colleges and universities, and and uh, both as a as contractor and and also for for education. Um, and so Terman comes back to Stanford in 1945 and says, we got to get in on this action effectively. Mm. <laughs> um, this is going to be our ticket. And so he, working with the then president of Stanford and other leaders of Stanford, really remade the entire curriculum, um, beefed up ph- physics, beefed up engineering, built whole programs that were you know, centered around cutting edge digital technologies like silicon semiconductor manufacturer, um, and really became a leader um, in and a partner with industry and partnered with industry in ways that uh, were unheard of at the time. Um, And I'm not, I don't want to advocate, I don't think every public or private university should, you know, want to do exactly what Stanford did. They kind of made some sacrifices along the way. You can't be good at everything. Um, And it it was and is a very technically focused institution. Um, And that's not necessarily what, you know, say a public university like the University of California at Berkeley um, was able to or should do. You know, there's a public mission of higher education that (laughs) that sometimes can go against this, you know, very utilitarian, build it up so you're the ultimate in electrical engineering and physics. Some people say, well, why didn't Berkeley, you know, I mean, Berkeley's absolutely really critical to the tech story. But Berkeley functions in a very different way um, than Stanford does, in part because it's a public university. Um, And Stanford, as a private institution, had a great deal of latitude to to 
remake its curriculum mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. focus um, to build up its focus on sciences and engineering in a way that was absolutely perfect for the times um, took advantage of all of this money flowing westward from the Defense Department and the uh, atomic what was the Atomic Energy Commission which is now the Department of Energy um, all of these big federal agencies that are just pouring money into advanced scientific research and development and uh, and and Stanford just saw that opportunity and its leaders grabbed it and ran with it. Hmm. And that flexibility is, I mean, I was struck reading your book. Um, Terman and I suppose uh, others in leadership there really were willing to try new things. I mean, one, one of yeah. which was not just an academic department. It was their office of technology leasing, um, which I, from what I can tell, I mean, these days, most schools have one of these units yep. that license their uh, research out to corporations. Yep. Maybe explain for our audience, what are those? Why was this such a pioneering thing that Stanford was doing? I think theirs is 1970. Yeah, the ninety-seven. Yeah, and so Stanford was was ahead of the game, and um, it was not alone in thinking about ways to commercialize the technologies that are coming out of its, out of its labs. And the and this sort of story of tech transfer is um, it's a it's an IT story for sure. Um, I mean, Google's foundational technologies were licensed by Stanford and <laughs> greatly enriched Stanford when Google <laughs> went big. Um, but it is also very much a biotech story. So I think that this is where we get into to another, you know, core industry that's growing up um, in and around the valley, um, and and other parts, uh, other tech hubs during the 70s and into the 80s, which is biotech, um, and and. You know that is one. You know, in, in, when you're thinking about computer hardware and software, um, you know the story is not just that of the the technology itself. It's also the people who develop and build that technology. Mm-hmm. And on the on the IT sort of the that side of things, you know. Stanford's perhaps greatest spinoff has been the people, its graduates, the people who graduated from there, not necessarily the things that were germinated in its labs. But on the bio side, um, you know, you have to have an academic, you need to have a lab to develop the foundational products, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, for for biotechnology. Um, It's a very different, um, it's a very different process of of product development and marketing. Um, And it's a longer time frame. And that is where making it easy for the products of government sponsored university research to be commercialized um, was absolutely instrumental in 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 encouraging a a revolution in biotechnology and 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 then seeding a whole new set of companies um, both in the valley and elsewhere that have um, you know transformed medicine and also have have been incredible business success stories on their own Now, Stanford made those changes for a pretty basic reason. It was the Great Depression. Finances were tight, and so the university sought corporate sponsors for basic scientific research. Later on, as we'll discuss in our next episode, they looked to the military for funding, which had all kinds of ramifications for good and for ill. Incentives do matter. But that's not only true on the institutional level, it matters on the level of individual researchers as well. And those individual incentives were about to drastically change. You see, prior to the 70s and 80s, a university-based science 
scientists received relatively little financial reward for the research they performed. Now, sometimes corporations would buy patents off of researchers, but the big companies had all the leverage in the negotiations. On the other hand, if you took government research grants, the laws that then stood said that the government owned most of the resulting patents, leaving nothing for the researcher themselves. But in the 1970s, two things changed on both fronts. First, in 1970, Stanford created the first Office of Technology Licensing, which was a university clearinghouse for patentable research. If your research led to a patent, in exchange for splitting any proceeds from that research three ways between the researcher, their department, and the university, the university would license out the use of the patent, though not ownership, to you know co- companies that wanted to use that basic research. The other change came in 1980, when Congress passed a key bipartisan piece of legislation called the Bayh-Dole Act, which meant that the government no longer claimed patent rights for projects supported with government grants. I asked Margaret about how these two developments changed the incentive structure for researchers. Now, maybe you can describe for our audience what it was like. Now, this is both a story about before uh, these kind of licensing offices at universities, but also before the um, what was known as the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980. And so it's yeah. at the tail end. One's kind of the development of these offices is at the beginning of the 70s. One's kind of at the tail end of the 70s. And my understanding is that it kind of dr- dramatically changes the incentives uh, for university researchers and for universities themselves when it comes to encouraging innovation. Why was that? Well, it's interesting. It's yeah, it sort of turns it's a it's a real kind of reformulation of what government funded research is for. And when you go to the, you know, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, um, you know, government research was uh, or or academic research sponsored by government contracts was not seen as a, you know, pathway to future entrepreneurship and wealth building. It was a, you know, competing with the Soviets in scientific yeah, production and right. building better, Guns, um, whatever, uh, yeah. you know, b- building up the science complex of the United States. Um, uh, commercialization wasn't completely out of it, but that wasn't the main, the main end. When you get to the seventies and the eighties, there's now this, um, part of it is, you know, the, the, the talented scientists and engineers realized that they, you know, they could stay in academia and they could make a certain amount of money and they could you know do this, or they could uh, commercialize what they're doing and uh, kind of, you know, have this incredible entrepreneur, entrepreneurial future. Stanford was, you know, aside from even before it had the Office of Technology Licensing, was ahead of its time in allowing its faculty to consult for industry as, as well as hold their day job as faculty members. So they were able to essentially make some money on the side <laughs> and to, uh, you know, to be on corporate boards, to be um, technical advisors, to be, uh, you know, to kind of get a piece of the action. Um, and so, you know, that that is, you know, now there are these these commercial incentives for um, scientific people, personnel, to do things outside of academia, um, and so that's one thing. That's that's one kind of thing that's that's precipitating this turn towards. Let's find a way to make this this technology more easily commercializable. But the other thing, and this is kind of where again and again, you know, when you when you you need to sort of integrate the story of tech with the broader story of American history and particularly American political history, but also business history to really understand what's going on. So think about the 70s. What's going on in the 70s? Well, first of all, the the Vietnam War is, um, you know, (laughs) not loved by anybody. (laughs) Wherever you are in the political spectrum, you're pretty much against it. So there's so. 
started a very unpopular war um, and a consequent decline in military spending after the war, real cutbacks in the size of the military. So those contracts aren't flowing anymore like they used to. There isn't as much military activity. A pivot during the Nixon era towards um, government investment in health creation of the NIH, these other health agencies um, that are seeding new new discoveries, again, kind of having the stimulate, stimulating new, new innovation that is potentially commercializable. And then you have a kind of crisis in American business, right? American mm-hmm. manufacturing, you've got competition from Japan, you've got oil crises, stagflation. And so uh, policymakers in Washington, um, and, and we see this throughout the kind of Nixon and the Ford uh, administrations, but also into Carter are like, okay, what can we do to stimulate a new generation of industry? And how can science, science-based industry help bring the economy back? And so all of these things are feeding into increased pressure for the rules to be changed on how all of the, the you know, what's being conceived in university labs, how you can commercialize it. And a lot of the big universities that have a lot of research, um, University of Wisconsin was really ahead of the game, was really the first mover in technology, creating sort of a tech transfer office, but also Stanford, MIT, other big big dogs um, are starting to do some of this commercialization that really went by the time you get to Baidu, Baidu in 1980, um, it is a it kind of universalizes something that some of the elite research institutions have already figured out a way to do. Um, it's significant that Bai from Indiana and Dole from Kansas are the two sponsors of it. Um, the reason that they were in it was not just because they cared about the commercialization of scientific research, but also because they wanted the universities and institutions in their states to be able to share in to to, to as commercialize as easily as these other big um, big players were were doing. And so in a way it was a kind of effort to democratize the the process of commercialization and spread it across the country. These two changes, university licensing offices and the Bayh-Dole Act had huge effects. Consider the difference for university researchers themselves. Licensing offices leveled the playing field as they negotiated with big corporations, resulting in more money for inventors themselves. Before this, average revenue for an inventor was about 15% of proceeds. That more than doubled to 33%. And universities started making bank too, with Stanford's licensing revenues in the 13 years prior to 1970 totaling a mere $3,000. In the 50 years since, that number has been more than $2 billion. And Bayh-Dole had perhaps an even greater impact. Before 1980, these government-held patents were woefully underutilized. Consider that when the law was passed, federal agencies owned 28,000 active patents, but fewer than 5% of them were licensed. Contrast that with a control group, the small number of patents funded by government grants that the government did allow companies to freely use. They had a utilization rate of 25 to 30 percent, five to six times higher. Now, in addition, there were entire fields of research that languished prior to buy dole because policymakers, well, you know, they're a risk averse set of people who tend to be focused on any potential downsides to the exclusion of potential upsides to innovation. When government held the patents, researchers and companies were constantly worried that Congress or federal agencies would prohibit or delay development of new technology. Like, for example, this was a constant concern in early biotech research into recombinant DNA. 
that fear of political tinkering was lessened, although not removed, after Bayh-Dole. But I'm afraid that these crucial deregulatory and market-responsive decisions just might not be possible any longer in our current political environment. So I asked Margaret, who actually worked in politics prior to becoming a historian, to compare the political context of the 1970s and 80s with today in terms of you know, openness towards pro-innovation policy. It's, it's such a striking moment, I mean, in terms of the political economy, um, that at this moment, late 70s, early 80s, there's this bipartisan kind of pro-tech movement. I mean, by mm-hmm. Dole, you've got you know everyone from um, uh, Michael Dukakis to um, uh, Al Gore to Ronald Reagan. I mean, you have from both political parties across the political spectrum, there is a – there are – there are folks who are in favor of certain forms of deregulation uh, for the sake of of technological innovation and finding commercial applications that will help the economy grow uh, because of you know the economic doldrums. Everyone wants to get out of the '70s economy, which was not a great time for you know for for lots of good reasons. Um, but today, we're, it feels like we're moving into the inverse of that, which is you can maybe see the first inklings of a bipartisan anti-tech push, uh, which is concerned mm-hmm. about over-commercialization and people mm-hmm. you know, exploit, you know, uh, economic growth at the cost of exploitation. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see a parallel, kind of an inverted parallel there? How do you think about that yourself? Yeah, I think it's so interesting. I mean, <laughs> that just in the the, the swing from um, both parties being such champions of tech, and and really been, you know, all of the all the things that the tech industry has been able to do in the last quarter century, both for good or for ill, um, have really been a kind of consequence of both Republicans and Democrats. They've been arguing about a lot um, since the '90s, but but in the '80s, but the, the one thing that a lot of them tended to agree upon was we need to create a, a runway for Silicon Valley companies. Companies to grow, and now what we have is the consequences of that growth, and it's and it's been a great deal of economic concentration. Um, you know, the parallel that I, this makes this what this reminds me of a lot is I go back to Teddy Roosevelt. I go back to the first yeah. decade of the yeah. 20th century. Um, this reminds me a lot of the the political dynamics that we saw in the progressive era, the response to the first Gilded Age, um, the growth of a whole of a whole set of new tech, high tech industries, railroads, steel, oil, you know, brand mm-hmm, new industries mm-hmm. that hadn't existed before that had grown in a essentially deregulated environment to become enormous and to become inescapable, right? Uh, the it, it, An American of 1905, five could not live they could not go to the grocery store without you know having to pay prices that were essentially set by you know the sugar trust or one of these giant conglomerates they mm-hmm, couldn't mm-hmm. get on a, a a train to go to the next town without you know the ticket they were paying was set by these giant railroad companies um, and on and on and on and uh, and so uh, you know there's a political backlash to that um, there's a uh, on both parties you know you go back to again to the first decade of the 20th century you have Teddy Roosevelt um, and you have have Woodrow Wilson, mm. um, both with sort of different ideas about the means to the w- the way to respond to um, the growth of large companies, but are both have regulatory responses of some kind. Um, Roosevelt is less a trust buster than he has a than he gets a reputation for. Um, he was more of a regular regulator. He you know believed in guardrails. <laughs> you could be big, but you just need to have some rules of the road. Where Wilson was a you know Jeffersonian all the way. He wanted mm. to small, 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 <laughs> break them up. So, uh, you know, and out of that moment come the the regulatory agencies that are still, you know, the, the ones that we're turning to to say, OK, Federal Trade Commission, what's you know, what are you going to do about Facebook? Um, 
So I, I see, you know, in a way that's it's it's not surprising to me that this is this has been the response and that it's a bipartisan response. Um, and economic concentration is, you know, it, it, it can have a it can quash innovation um, there. There is, you know, there there are reasons that we try to find some way to kind of create a countervailing force against that um, so that there's still opportunities for the next generation of entrepreneurs to get some, you know, get a foothold in the market. Now, you know, we're historians, so future prediction, not really in our bailiwick. Um, but are there any contemporary trends in American society, economy, politics that make you wonder if that next major tech hub might be somewhere else in the U.S. or somewhere else in the world? And mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm asking, where do you think the next cities of knowledge might be? Mm. Um, it's really interesting. I was I've been really a kind of a, a Debbie Downer on that question for yeah. a long time. When people were like, how do you? I'm how can we build another Silicon Valley? And yeah. I was like, well, you can't really. Um, which is, I realized I could have had a multi-million dollar consulting career had I had a different answer. But I'm I'm too much of a truth teller, I guess. Oh man. But let me tell you, I I'm kind of changing. I, I think what we're seeing, particularly in the last few years, is is kind of challenging what I had concluded. Um, and I think that was my conclusion was was the right one for a very long time. But yeah. I have, especially in the last, um, you know, that recently just in traveling and talking to people around the country and around the world and seeing what's going on um, and the actual, not just the kind of, oh, we're building a silicon something and we're putting, we're calling it silicon and thus it will come. We're going to build this beautiful research park and everyone's going to show up. Um, I've visited a lot of kind of deadly research parks (laughs) or research (laughs) parks that really wanted to be something and didn't, didn't become that. But now uh, in the last few years, I go and I think this has to do with tech also moving back to the center of cities in the U.S. and the rest of the world where there's kind of more, you know, it's not about building a place. It's about actually building community and building a, a real vibrant um, economic you know, collect agglomeration. Um, there's stuff going on. I think it has to do with, uh, you know, the fact that tech software has indeed eaten the world. Mark Andreessen's prediction in 2011 was, was right, um, that, that software is everywhere. Everywhere is a technology company. So you can be in Kansas City. You can be in Lisbon, Portugal. You can be, you know, pretty much anywhere. And you and, and you have a – you can build a viable tech business. Um, and uh, and so it, the geography is really changing. I think that the next gen is, is – you know, it the, the industry is global. Silicon Valley isn't a place anymore. It's a global network. But here's where, you know, I'm thinking a lot and I know a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people listening and, and people I talk to are thinking a lot about China yeah. and, you know, the other uh, rising tech economy. And I look at China and I see a place that is doing a lot of things. It, look, they looked at the Cold War U.S. and they took notes. They're doing a lot of things the U.S., did back then and and has doing less of like investing in advanced technologies investing in higher education um at scale um building cities building infrastructure um at scale um uh you know able to do that because of its its structure of government (laughs) um you're able it's a lot easier to cut through red tape build a neighborhood or build a highway (laughs) when you (laughs) when you don't have a liberal democracy um but uh (laughs) there's that yeah for good Uh, or for but but an amazing (laughs) amount of entrepreneurship um and you know meanwhile the u.s is Doing, taking some of the things that made it great, like investing in R&D, investing in higher ed, both public and private, creating an amazing escalator of opportunity for young people to 
get on and get educated and do amazing things. Steve Jobs' dad did not graduate high school. Wow. Like he's not, you know, these are these people, the people who are the icons of the industry that that we look up to. They were by and large coming from pretty modest backgrounds. They did they were not born on third base. Yeah. And and that has it has changed, you know, the startup hustle right now. You want to go, you know, be, you know, come out of college and start your own company, live on ramen noodles for six months in San Francisco. Well, I hope you have a rich uncle. Mm. I mean, you know, or I hope you don't have, uh, you know, family back in your home country that you need to send money to to make sure that they, their house, you know, they have a roof over their head. Yeah. Um, it, it becomes exclusionary, and and I think that that's you know that's not liberty. <laughs> that's not no. that's not opportunity. And 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 look, it, you know, China's not going to pr- provide that sort of liberty and opportunity, but the U.S. did, and it can do that again. And I think that involves a, a real reckoning with, you know, what is the role of the state and the role of policy in this sort of productive, generative, opportunity-creating um, environment that actually does one better from what we've done before. Um, you know, we created opportunity for a whole bunch of Americans, but they were usually, usually guys. They were usually, um, you know, certain came from, they, they was, there were a lot of people who were left out of that. Um, and, you know, how can we do it one better going forward? We at Building Tomorrow would argue that putting a thumb on the scale often means taking a thumb off the scale, looking to markets in the private sector for innovation rather than relying on government grants, bureaucratic management, and industrial policy. When California encouraged labor freedom and mobility by banning non-compete clauses, it had positive results. When the U.S. after World War II opted against government-run research labs like those in other countries and went instead with a hybrid model of government grants for private researchers, it had positive results. When Bai Dole took hidebound government middlemen out of the patent licensing process, it had positive results. Incentives work, markets work, and the resulting efflorescence of spontaneous order that erupted in Central California sure worked beyond the wildest imaginings of even the most optimistic observers back in the day. In any case, that's our show. We'll return in two weeks with the final episode in our Silicon Valley series. Until then, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.